everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Whom. I'm Bernard Hickey from the Kaka, and joining us from sunny, I hope, Hearn Bay is our co-host, Peter Bale. Great to well, see you, Peter. Hi, Bernard. As you can see, I'm actually in a bordello in Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> I'm over... I'm over covering the Xi Jinping uh, arrival in Hong Kong, but no, you're right. I am, in fact, in um, Hunbei. No, it's great to have you back in Aotearoa because um, plenty of action uh, here, but also overseas. Um, you've been in and around that part of the world in the last... Yeah, the, the, week, that part of the world, you mean overseas, yeah. All yeah, of yeah, those yeah. parts of the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Quite but here. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because this week, New Zealand was on the um, global stage for a couple of minutes, at least about four minutes. The Prime Minister gave a speech and we signed off on a free trade agreement and um, it was all rather heady. Um, what, what did it feel like uh, overseas uh, to see all of these NATO leaders together and, you know, talking about beefing up their forces and pushing the Russians out of Ukraine and, mm. you know, how, how does it feel? Well, I don't know about how I feel, Bernard, but I mean, one, I, I, I do think, and, and I may actually write about this in the next, in the next, uh, my next uh, North and South column, which I just have a little promo for my North and South mm -hmm. column. I'm sure everybody here is a North and South subscriber, but I do think it is extremely interesting uh, that the prime ministers of um, Australia, New Zealand, and a couple of other countries who were not in NATO were, in fact, at the NATO meeting. Um, the focus on China is interesting. Uh, but I think the main thing is the scale of this Western alliance that is being aligned against Russia over Ukraine. I wouldn't want to make too much of it in the sense that um, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make Ukraine any easier in a way, but, it, but the scale of this recalibration of the threat that Russia poses, the scale of the recalibration of NATO, the increasing by nearly 10 times of the number of active tr troops on sort of active duty or ready to be deployed at any moment, from um, just over 30,000, from just over 30,000 to 300,000, is a pretty extraordinary generational shift. And I, and I keep going back, you know, because we're both a little bit old, to the early 90s when George H.W. Bush and then, and then Bill Clinton declared the peace dividend and, and Margaret Thatcher, you know, that's the last time we had that scale of kind of NATO shift with the end of the Cold War. And I, and I often think with stories like this, it's really important to discuss them in terms that um, anyone born, uh, any, anyone not our age will understand because the, these shifts are generational. And um, the whole repositioning of NATO, the bringing in of Sweden and Finland this week, although Turkey's getting a bit toey about that again um, already. What, what, you know, these... what went on there? Why did Turkey suddenly decide, oh, yeah, it's fine to have Sweden and Finland in there? Is that just because they got the F-16s from America? Or yes, what? I think there's part of it. I think that's I think that's part of it. There's also there's a couple of things. And, and the, the bit that um, Erdogan, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the... Um, uh, Turkish president raised today was the issue of the number of um, Kurdish alleged terrorists and alleged terrorist sympathizers that are quite hard to say sympathizers uh, that are in Finland and um, Sweden. And the issue there, of course, is that both of those countries have offered some level of sanctuary, not necessarily I mean, just to people from the PKK to um, various sympathizers. Scandinavia has been uh, overall has been a really important sort of place for um, 
Kurds to go and Kurds to fit, be, in, be in relative safety, PKK type people, people, sort of people in that spectrum. And that is, I, I think extraditing them is almost certain, certainly out of the question, but there will have to be some sort of suppression of them, I suspect, in order to meet Turkey's needs. The other thing that, that um, Sweden uh, and Finland, but particularly Sweden had um, blocked arms exports to Turkey. And that's kind of important when Turkey, Sweden makes both as uh, artillery. And, I, and I, so I suspect there's something going on there as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty heady mix when Joe Biden turns up and says, we're going to increase our numbers of troops in Europe. Uh, we're gonna have Finland and Sweden join up with NATO. We're gonna have 300,000 ready to fire troops on the borders ringing Russia. Um, and at the same time, we're sending quite large numbers now of long range rockets and artillery and some success, it seems, overnight with the Ukrainians um, blasting the Russians off Snake Island. Yes, yes. Although just as we come, as we go, go to press, not that we're going to press because that would be incredibly old fashioned. Um, Russia has just hit the city of Odessa with some missiles. Um, you know, again, big killings of of, um, of civilian targets, it would appear, or civilians. Yeah, you know, I, I think. Um, I, I was really struck also by. I mean, I, I don't want to make fun of Biden again, but uh, but why not? Um, I was just listening to the to the world news, and he talked about because um, this is fantastic concept that we've talked talked about of uh, Finlandization, which is how Finland survived the the um, the Cold War. And of course, Biden said that Putin had been um, had 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 his wishes, you know, re reversed by them joining NATO by the ambition for them to join NATO. But he talked about Findalization instead of Finlandization. <laughs> so, you know, I just always worry with with um, with Biden that he's he's just one gaffe from um, from causing another crisis. But it was yeah. quite amusing to me anyway. Yeah, we always remember that line from Reagan about you know we start bombing. Yes, yes, which something. was at least at least that was a kind of mic test. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean it, it is uh, quite a thing. And so, but, but, yeah, just to go back to Jacinda being there, I, I do sure. think it's extremely interesting. I really want to know more about what the, you know, small small group of people that was that was sent over in the Hercules is doing. I'd be fascinated to know what that Hercules is doing. I doubt we will know that. Because I suspect it's you know flying to and fro between the Czech Republic and Poland and doing various things. Somebody told me the other day about a about a place and maybe I mentioned this before, but a, a place where um, trains are bringing um, destroyed Russian tanks to a factory in um, the Czech Republic, which are then being rapidly repaired and sent back again. And there's just a sort of continuous trail of of um, captured Russian tanks going to being being ferried to the to the Czech Republic to be sent back as Ukrainian tanks. But it's also I, I, I did read this week this or just today, in fact, that the Ukrainians have acknowledged some very heavy losses themselves. So, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is by no means a cakewalk for them. And we get, we get down to that kind of grinding, grinding thing in the east. The Russians have made significant or some steady progress at huge cost in the east. And they've got that land corridor that um, Robert Patman and, and other people, and we talked about at the very beginning of some of our some of our conversations about all of this. That you know there is now a land corridor between between mainland Russia and um, and Crimea, and and this move today on on Ukraine kind of op on Odessa opens up another front in a sense on that eastern eastern well, in fact in that case the southern flank, and it also calls into question whether the loss of the um, loss of Snake Island might allow 
some grain shipments out of out of Odessa. Yeah, well, the Russians um, portrayed it as some sort of you know strategic withdrawal to allow the gesture. Grain yes, exactly, exactly, <laughs> that's, and then that's, and then rapidly attack Odessa. So I think yeah, yeah. that's some PR opportunism mm, right there. Mm, but mm. Um, uh, it is interesting now. It feels like a sort of a race against time to see how long this Western alliance can hold together. And I must say that the NATO summit and all of the noise around it was very much about unity. We're together on this. There's no doubt about it. We know that the idea, the idea of appeasing Putin and trying to make it go away is not going to happen. Mm. We're, we're all, we know it's going to hurt. We know that it's quite likely the Russians will turn the gas off completely to Germany. We're doing our best to try and deal with that. Um, but still, we're going to um, keep throwing the weapons in there and fighting to the last Ukrainian because um, it's our buffer to stop. It, it, it is thing. our buffer, but it's also, uh, yeah, I, I feel we're at a kind of dicey stage in this because, um, uh, I mean, it's very hard to quote Boris Johnson on this or take him seriously on anything in this because Boris Johnson's really trying to use Ukraine as a bit of a life belt at the moment. And, you know, he tried, he, he, you know, made a point at um, the G G7 meeting that, um, you know, we, we couldn't afford to take the pressure off Putin. And he's announced a billion dollar, billion pounds, supposedly, of, of fresh shipments of weapons to, um, to Ukraine. But at the same time, the UK is talking about reducing its armed forces by 10,000. So it all just seems a little bit contradictory. And it's, and it's also getting very clear that some of, the, some of the Western stocks of some of these weapons are fairly critical. They only make apparently 4,000 javelins a year in the United States. Um, and, and they've sent about a, about a third of their current stocks to Ukraine already for the javelins. You know, you're, you're talking about, to some extent, with exception, possible exception in the United States, some rather uh, under-resourced military um, sending quite critical pieces of their infrastructure. So it'll be interesting to see whether the UK can meet its commitments and other countries can meet their commitments, particularly to the Baltics, because one of the big shifts in the um, in the NATO doctrine that uh, Jens Stoltenberg didn't he sort of he hinted at it rather than announced it in a sense is that the the previous doctrine had been to if, if were Russia to invade that Lith Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia would be kind of sacrificed. And, that, and then there would be a reinvasion by NATO in 180 days because they knew Yikes. they couldn't keep the Russians off. And that, <laughs> and that doctrine is being replaced by a kind of, no, we'll defend them, defend them, defend ah. them in the first. And I'm just not sure that that's going to be practical. Uh, and also, I mean, again, we may have talked about this last week, but actually we didn't because of Matariki. But uh, in my excellent, um, I'll just say that I'm kidding, my, in my spin-off World Bulletin of last week, I talked about the Sawalki Gap, which is the mm. little strip of land that carries the railway that goes from uh, Russia down into Kal Kaliningrad. It's little, it's a little exostate on the Baltics. Yeah, there seems that, to have been a skirmish this week, and that where... is a really serious mm. potential area of provocation. And you, and I, I think the Russians will be looking for a point of provocation shortly, not to not to out Robert Robert. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Um... It is fascinating to see what's happening there, in part because the political pressure is really growing on the United States and in Europe, where approval ratings for the people in charge, Biden, Schultz, Macron, mm. Biden, is just going through the toilet as everyone looks at their petrol slash gas prices mm. and goes, ah! And um, the, the pressure is 
intense. And you can see Putin obviously is turning the dial because in the last week he's he's further pushed down the um, gas supplies into Germany. Mm. One of the biggest electricity retailers in Germany is basically going bust and is asking for a bailout from the German government. Yeah, I think there is a, you know, this the summer, the summer in Europe is a critical mm. period because the moment you get, you know, Europe must be really hoping that this this can be reversed and gotten out of but before kind of September, October. And I just, you know, he's, and he's got incredible patience, got incredible, you know, extraordinary authority and still an enormous amount of money coming in to fund um, to fund this war effort, there was a very good story today. I noticed in the in the Economist, Bernard, that um, uh, in the the Sakhalin uh, oil and gas fields in the, on the Kamchatka Peninsula in the east, I, I hadn't realised that Japan hasn't um, done anything about sanctions on that and is still receiving nine percent nine percent of its LNG is coming from from its investments in those in those fields, whereas Chevron and the others have Exxon rather and the others have um, you know and trying it- to bail out of them. And the Japanese are desperate for that LNG because they've turned off their nuclear plants. Yes. And this week they had record high temperatures in Tokyo, 39 degrees Celsius. Everyone's got their air conditioners turned to the max. So they they had uh, they were on the verge of um, power blackouts in Tokyo and just got away with it. You know, and just about everywhere in the world, the the word power blackout is you know on the front well, page. Is, at some maybe point. this is, maybe this is a good way to segue, Bernard, because I think mm. you know the you, what you, what we're seeing the, the UK is opening up uh, the potential for fracking, having stopped it stopped it mm. in the UK. It's trying to it, it's uh, given incentives to to increase um, exploration in the North Sea. Um, the United States is trying to sort of refrack areas that it's that it's fracked already. Uh, and you know we're going to see an enormous burst of um, oil exploration and energy, energy, you know, fossil fuels extraction triggered by this Ukraine invasion. And I'm afraid that is going to have some really terrible consequences for anything we're going to be doing in in terms of climate change um, reduction. I just, I yeah. just can't see it. It's going to be this blip. And then, of course, we've had this really interesting Supreme Court judgment in the U.S., which uh, has really I mean, although in the specific case, it uh, is, is really referring to an Obama-era uh, approach to, to uh, coal-fired power stations that is, is no longer applied, it's really a uh, shot across the bowels of the EPA, of the Environmental Protection Agency, and a huge limitation on what the United States federally can do to impose you know, limits, limits on um, fossil fuel uh, carbon dioxide production. Yeah, the Supreme Court, the attention has been on that um, decision about abortion, obviously. Mm, mm. But the shift to a 6-3 conservative liberal split on the Supreme Court is going to have wider implications than just these um, culture war issues. Uh, But on climate, I mean, this is one of the things, one of the pieces of power that Biden had was the ability to use the uh, Environmental Protection Authority to control emissions from existing coal-fired and gas-fired power plants. Because in America, it's so hard to get any sort of law change through the Congress because of the way that uh, the Congress is set up and the lack of a the filibuster uh, rule means that basically, if you're the president and you don't have both houses, you basically all you've got is executive action. And so what the Supreme Court here has said is they can't even use that to do their thing on climate change. Meanwhile, uh, all around the world, 
the pressure on politicians to say, just solve this problem by mm. digging up mm. a whole bunch of coal or oil or gas is just and they will. so intense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's going to be, I think in the next few months, we need to be looking at a few other things on climate change, the, the, um, the, the mitigation, the mitigation questions that always get pushed aside which is, you know, in favor of the kind of whole net zero thing, we forget about how what, what the coping mechanisms are going to be. And that's that's I think, going, to, going to come into very sharp relief, including with things like this air conditioning problem in Tokyo with, you know, temperatures getting up to 40 degrees and so on uh, in June when there wouldn't normally be anything like that um, until August. I mean, the same thing. I was in Seville the other day. And it was 48 Celsius. What? It was 48 degrees in, in Seville recently. You know, and that is, but when what, what's striking about that is not that it's that hot because it is a, an extraordinarily warm, hot place, but just for it to be that early in the year is, is what's remarkable. That is just off the charts, 48 degrees. I mean, yeah. and all around the world, this is happening. And, you know, don't, it's all dawning on us that, of course, it's climate change. And just at the moment when it's very clear now, and, you know, it's a clear and present and immediate danger because of this war in Ukraine and the intense pressure on uh, cost of living, politically, at the very moment when we should be turning off the gas and the coal and mm. turning it back on, and it's just um, yeah. Well, I think I think and again, it's it, it, domestically, it's going to be interesting to see to see Bernard whether this just um, and this is going to sound awful makes a mockery of New Zealand's attempts to. I mean, actually, New Zealand's made a mockery of its own attempts, pretty much to. Um, to comply with the, with the Paris Agreement, but it, it, I just you know anything we do is going to be so small. Like I heard I heard someone on the wireless this morning talking about the proposed four lane road through the through Mount Victoria, and you know these kinds of discussions and debates are going to be just totally irrelevant at the moment on a global basis. Yeah, and because the the politics is just so ugly, and everyone's just focused on the big number, which around Wellington right now. Every single big sign outside the petrol stations is three dollars something mm. for everything, including diesel. Mm. And I can see, um, you know, if we if we do see the latest announcements about some sort of price cap on oil, as the pressure grinds down on on Russia's oil um, production going out into the, the main part of the global markets, that that price of oil goes up towards, back up towards $120, $140 a barrel. And particularly the government here is facing a really tough decision, probably within the next two or three weeks, about whether to extend the current 25 cents a litre tax cut from the middle of August. So the middle of August, we're going to have um, Parliament restarted, the, the Prime Minister back in the country from her overseas um, uh, uh, mission, and mm. and then everyone suddenly seeing a four dollar a litre uh, sign on the the um, the towers outside the petrol stations, and four dollars a litre just scares the bejesus mm. out of anyone running a focus group, and uh, you can see how the government already behind in the polls is now looking for anything they can to try and ease that pain. And you can see it being extended again at a cost of $120 million a week. And um, with this war going on, you know, it's clearly going to yeah, go it's, on. And it's, an extremely it's an extremely difficult 
set of problems for the for, for the government and very very little of it is is, is of its own making on, on just on the climate thing when that is also one of the interesting aspects of this european new, european union new zealand um trade agreement is that it will be also covered as you've predicted a few quite a while ago bernard it will uh, partly compliance with the paris agreement is written into it so new zealand can't get away with not not doing anything mm. Yeah, and, and this week um, we had the, the government uh, do a deal with the European Union on what it calls free trade. Uh, I think this is an abuse of the word free mm. to call it a free trade agreement when, as the dairy industry here points out, and I get slightly sensitive about this because I grew up on a dairy farm where the only thing we talked about was those bloody Europeans not letting us export in our cheese and butter into Europe, those bastard French. I Just let you in on a little secret um I, I was a sort of older teenager when the french bombed the rainbow warrior in mm. the auckland harbor in and older teenagers christ i was already at royce's bernard i was ah. dead at royce's yeah carry did, on did, did you did you do the reporting on this no i didn't uh, phil milky did i was already in sydney by then ah, wow um, it must have been an absolutely huge story at the time. I mean, still shocking to me. So for all those young people so on the why on are we the, why are we diverging to the to, to the Rainbow Warrior? Uh, this because, gives me this gives me a chance to rant against the French. Oh, oh, I see. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so the French send their saboteurs in the DGSE hmm. to hire a Newman's camper van to. Um, drive down to Auckland, bomb the Rainbow Warrior, kill someone, get captured by the accidentally brilliant New Zealand police, get put in, convicted and put in prison by an independent judiciary. And then the French use threats about withdrawing the tiny amount of butter access we get into, mm. into mm. Europe to force the government to essentially give up these saboteurs to a dodgy French island in the Pacific to, in theory, serve out their terms. And they were back home within, within a couple of, couple of years. And um, still, still the French refused to let us export properly into Europe at a time when even the French and everyone in Europe is saying, right, we need global solidarity of the Western powers, mm. free trade, democracy let's push back against the russians and the chinese we all need to get together except you know countries like us yep. <laughs> which are now quite vulnerable to um, the chinese saying yeah well you're not very nice to us so we're going to stop buying your milk powder um still not letting us exporting our milk powder into europe so this deal that was done today in which in theory we get a benefit by 2035 of an extra $1.8 billion a year in exports into Europe. Actually, which one could or, argue is not very much. No, particularly when. But better, than, they, better than a poke in the eye of a burnt stick. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, at a time when the Europeans and the Americans should be, you know, giving up a little. And about, apart from anything else, if you remove your tariffs and quotas and your various punishments uh, for imports from other countries, what you effectively do is deliver lower prices to your own consumers. Mm. So mm. if you have a, an inflation problem, which you're worried about, well, one way to solve that is to reduce all these crazy trade barriers you've got. And um, particularly when your allies, the ones that you um, have forgotten you bombed 40 years ago, um, 
are the ones who need it because yeah. this is the other yeah. thing that's well, I think, but it also this, this if we're going to get all historical about this and I, and I don't disagree with you at all about the about the rainbow warrior we've managed to do this without the help of the of of the UK so we no longer have to buy bloody rolls royce you know of course it doesn't we might want rolls royce engines on our on our aircraft then but you know i i do remember rob Muldoon effectively telling new zealand that it would that it would be having rolls royce engines on its on its uh, 747s in those days because it was all part of getting getting the um uk to support british access uh, new zealand access to to uk and european markets so whatever New Zealand's been able to extract from the European Union now is without its former colonial master and without, you know, the chaps in London. So good on her, really. Good on her. And, and is it Damien yeah. O'Connor? Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly yeah. we got a deal that the kiwi fruit exporters, the fish exporters and the honey exporters, we forget now that honey is a major export mm. industry, are quite happy about. And although our uh, feta producers are in trouble uh we've, st we've oh, still that makes it a fait accompli doesn't it uh, but don't yeah. Yeah, that, that's excellent yeah. <laughs> um uh that needs to be turned into a meme peter yeah. we need to record that bit and stick it on tiktok um at the fait accompli uh because we and the gruyere is a problem as well um we can still use camembert and brie I yeah think but only if we're exist only for existing only for existing places that are producing it and actually do you know what all of this is, is right you know we make some pretty bloody dreadful uh things <laughs> marked as parmesan i bought some the other day by mistake and it was bloody dreadful and it should not have been allowed to be marketed as parmesan because it wasn't from parma um you know so, next so, to, so what have what? we got can, can we trademark the word tasty or colby uh, or epicure yeah no you could <laughs> probably trademark tra tra trademark um uh christ what was it chisdale you know, we Tuesday. talked about you know, we are the boys from down on, uh, you know, <laughs> down on the farm, but um, we, we have trademarked Monica, I believe. Although, although because tea tree is also grown in Australia, they've they've got Monica too. Um, you know, those the, the, the Europeans have fought long and hard, rightly in my view, to protect some of those um, domain domain appellation type controls. You know, you've got Milton Milton Mowbray pies in the UK, which is pretty disgusting. But you know, you've got important things like champagne and parmesan and all of that. You know, so you we need to adulterated with, with you know, crap from Tiamutu. <laughs> well, we're going to have to come up with our own names. You know, Capri cheese. No, it'll be feta like. It'll be it'll it's be like. feta like. You know. Have you seen the fantastic suggestion from Pamela Somerville, one of our um, contributors yeah. today, that we need to stop calling it feta? Oh, feta. Oh, I like it. <laughs> right. We're all over it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, have, that's a very good... Jesus, that is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I shall I shall um, sell that to some marketing company. It'll be great. That's Thanks. a really good that, idea. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> uh, Method feta. Oh, that's good. Um, so... Uh, oh, yeah, oh no. and it'll be Parmesan from oh! Palmas to North. Yeah. <laughs> We're just wasted on a podcast, Peter. We should yes, be we marketing. Are. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so we got this deal, and it's sort of okay. But talk to the people in the meat and dairy sector, and they're pretty bloody grumpy about it. Because yeah, I'm like, but I mean, I mean, they sounded like whining farmers. Are these are these whining farmers who went on from from being whining farmers to running beef plus lamb, which I see yeah. is the imaginatively named you know plus former yeah. New Zealand meat board. Yeah, no, actually, they were quite complimentary about the UK deal, which actually did reduce the. Uh, uh, oh, we're reduce... on a meme here. Um, we've got Ashley saying myth, myth old fit, which is just kind of silly. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, no, Keep I'm going. really enjoying the meme here. 
and the the um, they were actually quite complimentary about the UK deal, where the Brits were actually desperate and needed a deal, so they mm. pretty much caved on the meat and dairy, particularly the meat. Uh, there must be a few grumpy fr- uh, Welsh. Uh, um, a lamb farm. Yeah, we can never understand what they're saying, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's right. Um, in fact, they're, and, they're still, still, the field's still covered in you know nuclear nuclear waste from Chernobyl. So you know. Ah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the good the good thing. We're um, nuclear free land, um, and uh, so they were actually quite complimentary about the UK deal. But the issue here is that the Europeans are going to keep their uh, tariffs on 97% of our dairy exports into mm. Europe. And um, I do wonder whether Jacinda Ardern decided to accept the deal we've got on the assumption that things are going to get worse in terms of isolationism. I think you're absolutely right. And, Anti-globalization. and to, to have any deal is better than no deal at the moment. Or not, not necessarily to have any deal, but to have a deal from which you can from which you can work. And and I and I, I don't think we should underestimate the level of engagement, you know, the level of engagement that New Zealand's had to have with the European Union, um, without without Britain to help. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, actually, I, I, admittedly, I'm not sure how critical that's been in the last few years. But certainly, you know, certainly without in, in, in the post Brexit era, it's it, it'll be it'll well it'll be Trevor Mallard's job to sort all this out now, won't it? Yeah. Now, well, he'll be going. And, to and he's um, he's certainly not a controversialist or. You know, likely to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. No, no, good. I, I noticed today that somebody, somebody's thing from Parliament described Trevor Mallard as shuffling off, and I thought, oh my God, the poor bugger's died. No, actually, I saw him around Parliament um, yesterday with a with his arm in a sling. So he's 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 um he's had some with his arm and arm and sling. Did you say is that a yeah, new arm, is that like uh, a, is that like a new peanut slab? <laughs> no, actually, in a sling, like uh-huh. he'd broken his collarbone. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, he's off to Ireland as New Zealand's ambassador there, so that will be... Um, well, it'll be handy. Yeah, yeah. The other reason this, I still think this is a big deal, is, is in that speech to NATO last night, the Prime Minister came out with, again, um, some pretty strong comments about uh, China. Yes, yeah, so the, the Chinese embassy in Wellington seemed to notice that. Do tell us what they were. Yeah, so... In a, she had a very short time. It was only four mm. minutes. She went across to Europe for a four-minute speech and to sign a free trade agreement, but still uh, four minutes in which she said, um, we're worried about China's expansion into the Pacific and we want you, i.e. NATO, to get um, interested in our area and to help us push back. Mm. And to mention China and human rights and expansionism in a speech to NATO, it's a bit like you know telling on your best mate to the to the fancy people up the road, you know, mm. and um, and also at the same time as NATO, we all forget you know everyone's focused on Russia, but NATO came out with a brand new strategic intent yes. art, um, uh, thing, document sixteen page, pages, which I linked to in the dawn chorus yesterday, in which NATO basically said. Um, and everyone thinks NATO is really just an anti-Russian Cold War thing. They're saying, no, one of our biggest threats will be um, China and China's use of cyber warfare and um, its problem with human rights, you know, really basically saying it's NATO in the West versus China and Russia. Yeah, well, it is, a vehicle, it is of course, I mean, the other thing is, you know, let's remember that it's only a couple of years since Macron said that NATO was brain dead. So, you know, under, <laughs> under Jens Stoltenberg, it is trying to regain its relevance. You've also had, you know, several years of four years of Trump 
saying it was pointless, useless. And I think there's absolutely no doubt. In fact, I heard Anne Applebaum, the, the very good uh, American Polish correspondent talking about this or commentator talking about this, that I think there's no doubt that in 2024, NATO, no, Trump would have another go at, um, at pulling the US out of NATO. So I think there's, there's a whole lot going on there about NATO being um, relevant relevant and effective. And, and it would appear that at, at least in the case of the Ukraine conflict, it, it is being somewhat relevant and effective. Yeah, and it really is um, sort of fun every day to see Jens Stoltenberg turning up on the telly as a Norwegian talking about a Russian invasion. Mm. Again, mm. I highly recommend- the occupation, to, yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend to everyone a series that lasted three series, a Norwegian-made Netflix series called uh, uh, occupied in which occupied, I'm sorry yes Bernard. yes in which the Russians How rude of me effectively take over Norway through a bunch of quislings fifth columnists uh, because Norway decided to turn off its oil and gas production when a green government got elected it's just like the most uh, well of course Bernard we do know that the word quisling is because of is the word quisling comes from the name of the prime minister of the Norwegian government uh, during the Nazi era, because we just read too much World War II history. We don't. Who who needs Robert Patman on? We got. We, we don't have to have bloody historians and proper academics on. We can just talk bollocks. Yeah, from our well, own not from our own reservoir of bollocks. Yeah, but I, I would highly recommend um, Occupied as a piece of entertainment, but also as a as a piece of sort of prescient um, uh, and interesting television about politics. Uh, the 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 um, the Scandi political dramas, you know, the Borgen and there's a couple of others as well, are absolutely fantastic. And yeah, but with, with Jacinda, we're actually living Borgen. Yeah. Wow. You know, we, we, don't, we, don't, don't, have to, we a, don't have to do Borgen as a drama. We're actually living Borgen. That's a column you need to write. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. If only, <laughs> if only, I, had a, if only I had a column in New Zealand's leading monthly news magazine. Yeah. There you go. That is that's yeah. just um, so, ten thousand um, pages. Right before we get into before we get into the um, uh, it, it's, it's something I really want to get into, which I think we we will, which is that U.S. Supreme Court decision. Stephen Youngblood asks whether we are living in the darkest timeline, or what does he say here? The I'm sorry, I've just made it too small. The darkest timeline. Oh fuck! I've got too many things on my screen. Hang on. Yeah, no, or at least one of the darkest. So I, I think people living through the plague and various other timelines, this wouldn't be nowhere near as dark as that. But, you know, you know I mean, I think the trouble is comparing eras with er eras with eras is, is extremely difficult because there are always um, shitty periods and difficult periods and crises. Um, we are not literally at war globally. However, we are literally at war globally between um, conservative ideas and pro mm. and progressive ideas, and I think that's I, I was really thinking thinking this through while doing this week's spinoff thing, which you could flick up Bernard into the chat because mm -hmm. it was absolutely mm. brilliant, of course. Mm -hmm. And the um, I, I, I was forced to I nearly put in a bit more commentary than I sometimes do in this, but for for the way I practice journalism or have practiced journalism, I was thinking that I consider journalism to be an inherently progressive form of work mm. and i mean lowercase p in that it is about informing people uh exposing injustice to some extent if you can if you're lucky enough to have stories that do that uh and it is not necessarily about preserving the status quo although to some extent it has been there historically mm. and 
so that's why I, I found that Roe versus, and that's why I wrote the way I did about the Roe versus Wade yeah. decision from the, from the Supreme Court, because I believe that that is, well, sorry, it doesn't really matter what I believe, but the, it is a fundamental shift towards, which is anti-progressive and to, towards the, to, it's reversing progress. Mm-hmm. Is this idea, and it's an extremely well-organized and uh, very practical idea, a very very pragmatic idea. Let me sorry. For it's a it's a fantastic. It's a um, forgive me. It's a fantasy, mm-hmm. but it is a very well organized fantasy that there was some period, whether it's in, under the Eisenhower years or some other period, that there was a kind of happy days version of America, mm-hmm. and they're trying to take us back to that. You know, when, yeah. When 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 men were, when 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 men were, when men were men, and we could say what a woman was, and our children were you know compliant. And, yeah, it sa- is, and and it's sadly, a Ron Howard view of America. Exactly. Although Ron Howard actually, I think, is quite. Yes, a forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't mean. I mean a Ron Richie Howard Cunningham, version. Richie, Richie Cunningham. <laughs> Richie yeah, Cunningham yeah. version of America. That's yeah. right. Oh boy, we're really freaking out all of our young readers now. Who is this Richie Cunningham? Just think the Fonz. Yeah. Just Google yeah, the well, Fonz. We, we better we better be careful not to not to jump the jump the jump the shark on this one. <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, I think we re- this the and the thing that I wanted to so Roe versus Wade the end of federal uh, protection for abortion. It is quite well known. Uh, and, and in fact, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this, said this, you know, the Roe versus Wade case was a, was a relatively weak basis on which to grant that right. And it was always going to be challenged at some point. However, the people who are challenging it, we need to understand, I think, where they come from, where those, where most of those conservative judges on, the, on justices on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court come from is this idea of being an originalist. And if you understand where they're coming from, you understand what's coming. And the idea of originalism, which was personified in in, in the the now dead um, Justice Scalia, Scalia, is that um, if it isn't in the Constitution and it wasn't thought of at the time of the Founding Fathers, then the Constitution is not flexible enough to extend to it. So... You know, that's where you get gun rights, despite the, the, the ignoring the fact about a well-organized militia, which is, which is where the Second Amendment, uh, Second Amendment starts. But because women were barely thought of, if at all, in the constitutional document, you know, but... Uh, and, let's know, not, and let's not talk about the original sin of slavery. In that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the, these people do... The, the, the concept of originalism is, is an extremely in- interesting legal conceit, mm. but it essentially says that the law is... is not flexible, not, it was set in 1789 uh, and, and is immutable. And so, so that their job, they, as they see it, Scalia's felt this, but now you've got a majority, pretty much a majority uh, on, the, on the Supreme Court who believe that their job is to mediate between the ambitions of contemporary life and politics and what's been achieved over the last 200 years and take it back, in a sense, to, to, to whether the founding fathers and the constitution would have agreed it. It is um, extraordinary to see a long plan, a long game come to fruition. So if you look back at the history of how the conservatives through the 70s and 80s developed the Atlas Shrugged Libertarian views Mm. and actually got together and thought, right, now how do we, you know, take control of our country back? And what they worked out is we need to gerrymander the states. We need to take control of the um, state legislators. Yep. yep, and the judiciary. Yep. yep, yep. And we need to get hold of uh, Congress, and we need to basically 
uh, right fuck our way into into power because we know with the demographics of America we can't just rely on you know winning an election fair we just basically have to screw the scrum so much that we're in control and in the face of it, it looks absolutely extraordinary that they could do this but now you have a situation where the U.S. states are mostly gerrymandered into Republican control mm -hmm. certainly the the Midwest and the South and the inevitable result of it, once you manage to get um, a, a Republican president who would do the bidding of, of these ultra um, conservative groups, is a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's just going to roll through. So we know from uh, Clarence Thomas that he wants to revisit the area of gay marriage, of homosexual law reform yeah, nothing oh. is immutable nothing is and, and this is the, the thing that i find positive so and again so it's, it's in my spin-off thing this week which and and it was in last week um the alito the alito the alito mm. samuel alito wrote the wrote the decision and one of the things that he based it on was apart from the, the the lack of the lack of discussion of abortion in the constitution was that it hadn't been um a settled part of american history for very long when in fact it's been there for 50 years which is you know a a bit, a bit under a quarter of kind of US legislative political history. So I, I would have thought that it was in fact settled, settled precedent. Of course, I'm not a Supreme Court judge, but you know, one could imagine it might come. But uh, despite my lack of any educational training, but that's never stopped me. But you know, it's it's just it's the most extraordinary idea that a country that young has in place a uh, a right like that for 50 years, which is a progressive right, and then that is considered somehow not to be um you know, a long-term, a long-term part of US US life. It's an extraordinary thing. Could I just address one? Pamela Somerville, the the extraordinary FETA person, um, asked whether put put up a rather provocative question about whether the Treaty of Waitangi is originalist or originalism, and I think it's actually the opposite, because it's it's all it, what what this is all what the last forty years. And I mean, I haven't lived here for the, most of the last forty years, but I've been living here for the last couple of years. This whole state we're in at the moment, where the Treaty of Waitangi is embedded in everything is due to 40 years of jurisprudence and modernization mm. and adjusting to the way that New Zealand is based on an original treaty. But it's not originalism. I think it's almost exactly the opposite. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting um, to me. Argu argument. And I'd, I'd love to bring in someone who is an expert on the oh, treaty. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the tribunal. stop us in our tracks. I know. But, but interestingly, um, for example, the, the republicanism movement that you're seeing in Australia, where the Australians are actually moving ahead towards kicking the, um, the crown, as we think of it, out of their system. In New Zealand, I think that's much less likely because... Uh, iwi and those who uh, see the treaty yeah, as the foundation document. They have a binding agreement with the sovereign. Exactly. It's and it's the crown the, as represented by the queen. Yeah. No, now, I, think, I think that's absolutely correct. I think that's critical. Yep. And um, I think uh, I, I, I find this fascinating what's going on. I've just seen, I put it into the um, chat there, just on this climate stuff, you know. So if, you, if, you're, if you're taking the forces of progressivism and flipping them back to, you know, 1776 or whatever it was. 1789, yeah. 1889, yeah. So, yeah. You, I mean, we are already in a dire situation with the climate and a conservative and often, you know, funded by the oil industry 
uh, our movement have yeah. been very successful. And they have, and I think so, somebody in the in the in the chat Bernard said, you know, could you imagine a, a New Zealand originalist movement? And I, and I don't think I don't think I can. I, I think it's very important to distinguish the originalists who are constitution. They're not just, you know, they are conservatives and they're pushing a, con a conservative agenda, but it is a it's a sort of semi legitimate. Uh, legal structure. I mean, no, no one would suggest that Scalia wasn't a sort of legal genius. It's just that he's a legal genius with a conservative mindset that uh, is is based on the on the sort of idea of something being immutable, which is very um, uh, very Talibanish, if you ask me. Um, mm. But but I do think what you have in New Zealand is a potentially very strong Christian fundamentalist and Christian um, mm. uh, evangelical movement. Which uh, is quite good at wheedling its way into 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 various policies yeah. of, this, of a social nature, and we've seen this week um, in our own domestic politics how that can cause trouble for someone who's trying to win the median voter. Mm. Uh, with Christopher Luxon having to slap down Simon O'Connor mm. over essentially um, a blog post which didn't even mention the Supreme Court directly, but simply said, "Oh, it's a good day." And eventually, he was had to had to roll it back. And I think one of the issues here is that New Zealanders. Uh, essentially, I think, uh, are wary of that sort of fundamentalism and extremism in our politics, and also do not see that Pentecostal um, uh, American-led Christian movement as something that is fundamentally from this country. Is that true, Bernard? Because, you know, if you, if you, go, you know, there's the Destiny Church, there's all of these churches, there's City city limits church. I'm, you know, I think this is this is a very influential group. Except, I mean, if, I, I don't think they're a sort of um, necessarily co co a cohesive group as such, but they're, they're a very very influential influential and politically politically aware group of yeah. people. Whether whether so, it's Brian so Tamaki or the people from the from the various um, uh, churches that David Farrier has been has been. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic piece of work that David Ferrier, a um, New Zealand's most um, uh, effective substacker, I'd have to say, uh, right. in, in reporting on this area. And what I what is interesting there is that, thank goodness for MMP in a way, that the threshold of 5% is mm. far enough away, so you can't get a completely nutty 1% or 2%. Yeah, they just have to infiltrate the, infiltrate the National Party instead. Well, it's... And or that's the, why or so the Labour Party. Yeah, and that's why so many people are wary of it, and why this week's announcements about cleaning up somewhat the um, uh, electoral finance laws is interesting, and mm. certainly in the, in light of what we've seen reported from the High Court case uh, alleging that um, people involved with the New Zealand First Foundation um, uh, breached various laws around the electoral finance. Mm. Interesting Act. that Winston wasn't there, though. Yeah. Um, Mr. Cleanhands. Yeah, there's a good piece from Newsroom asking the question, uh, how, how come the one man who built this party and is seen as its um, central focus wasn't actually the central focus of the court hearings? Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there's some fancy legal strategy involved there, which means that it hasn't come in there. But Bernard, so let, let, me, let me posit something else to you as well, which is because we've seen it during the, the COVID period is these weird alliances that form. So you, you're saying, you know, mm. New Zealand is a bunch of reason, reasonable people, um, you know, might not be, you know, might, we might not be believing anything very strongly, but, um, but we, you know, we know, we, we know bullshit when we see it. Um, 
the alliances that you saw then forming between various conservative forces, various non-conservative mm. forces, um, I, I think that the current furore about some aspects of um, um, uh, Maori political empowerment, uh, various things of that nature, that there will that there is a potential for a backlash which brings together some of those rather rather nasty groups. Yeah, so one of the other interesting bits of news this week, I think, is that um, a Microsoft report into uh, foreign interference in elections and in foreign politics found a very clear and large amount of action between Russian mm -hmm. uh, bot farms and various cyber activity experts pushing misinformation about vaccines and all sorts of things, no doubt Three Waters as well, into the New Zealand Facebook, Instagram, Telegramosphere in early this year, just before and during the occupation of parliament. And, you know, the prime minister was direct at standing up in front of the NATO audience mm. who are fighting for their lives and fighting back against Russian um, attacks saying, hey, guys, we're about as far away from Russia as you can possibly and they're doing get. Us. Yeah. And we got attacked too. Yeah. And, and um, it, it has had an effect on our... Can you imagine? Can can you imagine the little office and office at the um, research, the um, Internet Research Agency in in um, St. Petersburg that's got got the New Zealand New Zealand marked on the door? That's right. Do you spell Wanganui with an H? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, but let's cause a controversy over. <laughs> I mean, what a world we live in. It's it's extraordinary, and uh, I think it's. I got quite in, interested in this. How the internet has um, changed the nature of uh, public debate, public discussion, the sort of town square of the world and of our places in a way that, and at a speed that I could never have imagined when I first think, started thinking mm. about it. But one of the most interesting books that I recommend anyone read if they get a chance and written a long time ago now was uh, Dirty Politics by um, Nikki Hager, who focused in particular on the activities of uh, Cameron Slater and his blog and how he and David Farrar, not Ferrier, mm. David Farrar, went to the United States along with Jordan Williams from the Taxpayers Union and learnt their trade at the feet of the extreme right Republican uh, movement, which had this very clear vision. This is back in the early 2000s, which is to use the internet and whatever tools that they can to screw the scrum and take back control of the country. Flood, right. flood the zone with shit. Flood Steve the zone, exactly. Yeah. A and I was sort of stunned thinking, what on earth could a bunch of New Zealand bloggers learn from a bunch of conservative um, nutters in Florida? And, and they went there. They were, of course, paid by some rich person to go there and learn the special trade uh, and then came back and put it in action. You know, let's flood the zone, as you said, with shit, with, you know, misinformation, with dirty politics. And uh, for a while, this was used by the ninth floor of the Beehive when John Key was there until it got too close to him. And I think rightly people around him said, this is really nasty stuff. You want to disassociate Let, yourself. Let's also that. be clear, though, Bernard, that it is entirely legitimate for anyone with a political point of view and a, and a political position, whether conservative or liberal or 
or whatever to use these tools and to you know to use media to use these tools to communicate it is just that it's the twisting of the facts where it becomes extremely difficult and also the need to be aware of what their motivations are you know i don't i don't want to i don't want to say that everybody needs to be kind of liberal and progressive and although you know lower 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 case l and p in those cases or l and p um <laughs> for me but uh you know the, the, it is it, the conservative political viewpoints are a legitimate political viewpoint when it gets to the removal though of other people's rights the the the, the nullification of hard-won rights for others is when it makes me feel profoundly uncomfortable as a as a person not just as a journalist yeah, and also the cynicism involved. I mean, one of the other bits of news we haven't talked about this week is those extraordinary revelations from the January 6 hearings. Mm. Um, I've tried to avoid it because for the last five or six years, uh, I've tried to avoid going down following the whole Donald Trump story just because life's too short and, frankly, my mental health cannot handle spending all my time looking at my phone to, about what's the latest burp and fart on Donald Trump. But the stuff that came out this week about how he uh, fought with his own security detail... Which appears, to be, which appears to be contested. And the trouble is we shouldn't... Let's, let's stick to the things that she saw and heard herself. Mm. Cleaning the cleaning the cleaning the tomato tomato sauce off the off the balls of the after his tantrum in the and you know helping the waiter, hearing Mark Meadows, you know try to calm him down, hearing Pat Cipollone saying that we're going to be you're going to be arrested for all kinds of things if he goes down there. Mm. The you know the the um, more than enough to make it interesting and more than enough to make it interesting and yeah. and you know as as somebody pointed out today in a column I was reading you know what courage of a twenty five year old White House oh, assistant. Wow. Jeez. to come out and come out and do this i mean she will need protection for a very very long time but it just these the, the this is a coup you know this it is mm. very clear now this was an attempted coup and yet this person you know is the more republicans would like to see him back in 2024 than anybody else and this is the really interesting thing so over the last two to three weeks new zealand as a country has edged itself closer to america our major trading partner is China. Yeah. We've put a lot in with America uh, with this Pacific Blue Partnership. Uh, we're looking to expand or get involved on the edges of AUKUS. Uh, our Prime Minister, arm and arm. It's very with, fluid, isn't it? It's remarkably fluid. Yeah. The New Zealand political situation from even two years ago yeah. is remarkably fluid. And, 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 and you know, to, to have the Prime Minister at NATO... To, to, as you say, being now sort of nibbling on the edges of AUKUS. And AUKUS would probably be a more acceptable place without Scott Morrison there as well. Because yeah. I, think, I think Albanese oh. is a much less bellicose person. And, oh, oh, I wish we could get rid of Boris as well. But anyway, um, and, you know, oh, what we're, we're yeah. putting a lot in with a country that could have Donald Trump as the president again within two years. Mm. And um, that's that makes me slightly uncomfortable, particularly when we're putting our future really in the hands of you know i mean we we profess to have an independent foreign policy and of course trump comes along maybe we don't maybe we pull back a bit but you know we're we're a little bit vulnerable here uh more than 30 percent of our trade now volumes are going to china um immediately after the speech that the prime minister gave 
quite an unusual and direct and critical statement put up on the website mm. by the Chinese embassy mm -hmm. here in Wellington saying the prime minister was being um, unhelpful, <laughs> uh, um, wrong, and uh, and thus, you know, was doing counterproductive things and just reminded everyone that we had such a good relationship with all this trade we've been having for the last 20 years. It'd be a shame if something should happen to it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're in a delicate position here, particularly now that um, it looks like we're going to have a recession later this year. Our house prices are down 7% and headed for 15% down, according to the Reserve Bank this, this week. And, um, you know, China... Uh, Looks like it's dodged the COVID bullet right now, but is sticking with this crazy um, elimination policy. Well, I could tell. I was in Hong Kong Airport the other day for five mm. hours or something, coming over, and it was dead. There was, I think, there were two shops open, mm. you know, selling essentials like Martell and Chinese buns, and uh, nothing. It was just dead. And there was, you know, tiny amount of tiny amount of air traffic going going through there. It was a really interesting example having come out of Heathrow which was utterly rammed right. and packed and Stansted wow. the day before and various other airports in Europe and it was just where it's just mad uh Hong Kong was Hong Kong airport was a ghost town but of course she is there today and yesterday yeah. celebrating the 25th anniversary of the handover to Hong Kong from from the UK yeah and this week he again reaffirmed that he is sticking with COVID uh, elimination yeah. And until the um, big Communist Party shindig that's happening in October or November, in which he's expected to be sworn in formally as um, great leader for life, um, he's very much sticking to that. There was some easing of the quarantine restrictions on people coming into China. They don't only need to quarantine for seven days instead of up to 21 days. That's good news. And so, so far, China seems to be coming back to life a bit but all it'll take is another outbreak. And we know how, you know, for example, New Zealand is having a, another upswing of BA5, which is the new yes. nasty one. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to be very much, I mean, apart from Mark Dalder, our old friend from newsroom chirping in the corner very, very loudly and intelligently, there seems to be very little public concern expressed or very little media concern expressed about the uh, the level of deaths in New Zealand and hospital the, the the extent of the cases in New Zealand is it is it just that there's no that there's public exhaustion or what? Yeah, public exhaustion, but also political exhaustion. So, the inevitable next step, if you start saying, "Oh, I think we need to tighten up again," you know, we need to bring in compulsory mask wearing in schools, compulsory mask wearing everywhere. Um, we need to. Uh, for example, Michael Baker suggested this week that we needed to have compulsory isolation for people with the flu. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Good, good. Which, nice which, one. Nice one, Michael. didn't go down well. Well, I, and, I think that, that, see, John Graham is making that point that I, I think that's why they didn't do mandates in schools, that they didn't want to turn the schools into a battleground again, right? John yeah, Graham and, makes the point about, about the, Ban the Bannon-esque people, and they are there. Yeah. I, I, don't, I just don't believe that anybody wanted more nonsense in schools about yeah, and, and the Prime Minister and Chris Hipkins and the entire cabinet are now running whenever they get the chance away from, you know, nanny state control, freakery mm. stuff, which just gives more ammunition for National to say um, this government wants to stop you from doing what you really enjoy and want to do and they're in your way all the time and they're destroying the economy. Um, and the, the government really is on the back foot, not just on mm. cost of living, 
But now we're, we seem to be headed towards a slowdown, if not a recession. BNZ talking this week about something deeper and then a little slowdown at the end of this year. And, uh, you know, you can really feel it. We got consumer confidence and business confidence numbers this week, which were at or near record lows, in some cases lower than during the first weeks of the original lockdowns in 2020. But it's amazing when you look at the consumer confidence and business confidence figures, they are in many cases worse than in mm. 1990 and 1991, when we had unemployment of 10.9%. I mean, 10. Isn't there a song about the spinet? Ah, John Clark yes. used to, Fred Dad ah, used to sing. Yes. We don't know how lucky we are. We don't, don't, no, I, don't think we don't, I don't think we actually <laughs> want to do it. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it is extraordinary. We've got uh, income growth headed towards 10%. If you look at disposable income per household, because there's more people working for longer hours. And you've got wage growth, according to a survey this week, from small businesses at 5% plus. Um, 3.2% unemployment, the best we've ever had it. Um, incredible, still, you know, uh, incredibly higher household net worth for those who own homes and have shares than at the beginning of COVID. And the entire nation is just depressed as hell when it comes to... Can I just ask, can we just ask Sam here, Sam, is this a media thing that we're at the global... Well, a, Bernard and I aren't the global media. We wish we were. <laughs> and no, we're not trying to depress everybody and be helpless. So I've got a good... And, and there is no... I just think the idea sometimes that people think that there's an agenda. Yes, mm. the media sometimes comes across as with small C conservative, uh, depending, of course, of um, who the proprietors are and what, the, what on what basis they're working. But there is rarely a conspiracy. It's usually much more of a cock-up. So, Bernard, shall I finish with the Boris Johnson story? Yes, please. Uh, is it is it so, safe for work? Uh, only if I only if I don't take my trousers off. Okay, good. But so please don't take uh, your trousers off. yeah, yeah, no, no. So there's been a, a, an amusing story a couple of last couple of weeks in the UK because on uh, Friday night a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Downing Street got the Times of London and the uh, Daily Mail to pull a story from the internet and from later editions of the newspaper about Boris Johnson having uh, tried, when he was Foreign Secretary, to give his now wife, then girlfriend, Carrie Simmons, a $100,000 job as his Chief of Staff. Now, the key detail in it, which apparently, according to Private Eye magazine, is why the story was pulled, is because uh, a, another politician walked in on them in a compromising position. Now, that, that bit was in the Times, it has been reported, they were in a apparently, but apparently she was giving him oral sex in his uh, office as foreign secretary when she was his girlfriend and not his wife, and he hadn't got divorced yet. I actually, uh, and 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 it, it, there's another allegation being made in so, across social media, which I can't, I'm, I'm not going to. Well, I am going to give it top spin by it, which is the suggestion that the person that I came came across them was Gavin Wil Gavin Williamson, who was then the education uh -huh. secretary and who unaccount. Well, actually, possibly he was defence secretary at that point who unaccountably being one of the most gormless people in cabinet was given a, a knighthood in the last honours, possibly for um, not revealing what he'd seen in Boris Johnson's office. So it's all a bit gruesome over there at the moment. Mm -hmm. And then last night we had a guy ironically called uh, Pincher, uh, who was the deputy chief whip, who was resigned for uh, getting pissed in the Carlton club 
which is the great, not, not generally known as a gay hangout, uh, other than for people in the closet, presumably, uh, and fondling two men, um, which caused him to resign overnight. So it's, it's just a litany of, um, a litany of horror for he can't, over there. He can't go soon enough. And there's been two massive... Um, well, Pat Clark just is making the point, because, I, you know, a, a BJ for BJ is the way I've seen oh, it. Course, is, that's, that's enough. It's, yep. That's enough. <laughs> and I see we've got a, a, a few of our readers looking for some good news. And um, yes. <laughs> I, would, I would say that the good news is that Peter is back in New Zealand. Oh, that's really good. Well, that's, that's um, very kind of you, Bernard. Thank you. And and the and good news, but... yeah, yeah. Um, and and the good news is that um, we're uh, going great guns on the kaka and really enjoying the um, comments and the reading numbers and everything from our fantastic community. And um, I just like to say thank you, thank you very much to everyone who's participating in these hoons. I keep bumping into people in the corridors of Parliament and on Lambton Quay and in Queen Street, and in fact, on a plane last week. I, I, it, Barry Saunders gives me the impression that Lambton Quay is a sort of desert with tumbleweed, that there's no show. You know, Vance Vivian is closed and Helen Steins is closed and, you know, well, everything's closed and, this, and it's just tumbleweed. Yeah, it's true there's no shops, but there's lots yeah. of people bumping into each other having chats. Oh, good, the golden yeah, mile. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, thank you all to everyone at the Kaka. It's been a great, uh, fun uh, uh, and show. thank back. you to you and your huge team, i.e. Lynn. <laughs> We're very, very efficient here at the Kaka. Right, thank you very much, everybody, for um, coming on board. Thank you very much. Kakita, and I'll see you next week. Great stuff. Cheers. <laughs>